Now we are going to read in Mark um, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, which is page 844 in the Pew Bibles. Give you a second to turn there. Or sorry, 845, <laughs> starting on the bottom right. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's the word of the Lord. Good morning. Really, really fun subject this morning. <clears throat> you know, uh, as our team was getting together, you know, we, we're about six weeks ahead in terms of our planning and things like that. So six weeks ago, we were looking at this and... Uh, Back then, I believe that this divorce message fell on Mother's Day. So last week, I was like, Steve, if this falls on Mother's Day, you're teaching, because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing it on Mother's Day. And so something happened, and then so Steve taught, and so instead of teaching about divorce on Mother's Day, I got to teach about hell. And then um, <laughs> last week was talking about hell, and so now I get to talk about uh, Divorce, like, great. And so, as you can tell, uh, Pastor Steve is not here, and neither is our worship director, Jane. They've just all ditched. They're like, oh, we're not going to be. You're on your own. So, here I am. I need prayer, so let's pray. Jesus, everything in your word has a purpose and a reason behind it. And things aren't by coincidence or accident with you. And so, Lord, um, as we go through this today, knowing that some may be contemplating divorce, some may be um, already, and so we ask, God, that you would equip your church to go about doing your work, about spreading your love, about sharing your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus just received a question about divorce. He gives instruction about the nature of marriage and the aftermath of divorce. And while some may read this and interpret this as just a, a moral impact, I think we've known enough people who have gone through divorce to know that the impact is much greater than on their morality. That it impacts people emotionally, psychologically, socially, spiritually. Before we dive into this, I think we need to take a step back into last week's study and do a quick review because it carries into chapter 10. So going back to chapter 9, starting in verse 49, let's, let's start there. 
Jesus said this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Everyone will be salted with fire, meaning everyone will go through tests, everyone will go through trials, which happens in marriage, doesn't it? You go through trials, you go through tests within a marriage. And then Jesus spoke about losing saltiness. And if we've lost our saltiness, how will we restore that saltiness? And Jesus said, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So how do we salt ourselves? And so some of you who have gone to Sunday school for a very long time or grew up in it are saying, Jesus. And you're absolutely right. And then the second answer to Sunday school is the gospel. And so, yes, you are right. You, you get your cross sticker. And Jesus in the gospel, yes. But practically, how, what does this look like? Now we look back to chapter 9, verses 41 and 42. We're not going to hash the whole chapter out again, I promise. But I just want to point out some really practical teachings of Jesus regarding marriage and how we can be at peace with one another. And Jesus said in chapter 9, uh, in verse 50, well, in verse 41, he speaks about offering the smallest gift, right? A, a cup of water. And even with this small gift, there will be a reward in heaven. And then in verse 42, Jesus spoke about causing those who are weak, needy, vulnerable, in pain to stumble. That there are these grave consequences for causing the most vulnerable to be separated from God. And so practically speaking, in, in a marriage that is possibly entertaining divorce, how can saltiness be restored? How can peace be achieved with one another? Back to verse 41. Do the, do the smallest of good things. Just do the smallest of good things, like offering a cup of water. And stop doing the smallest of things that causes the other one to separate from God. To stop causing the other to sin. Now continuing with those verses, verses 43 through 47, we know that this is a matter of the heart. We talked about this last week, that, that hacking away your body parts is not going to solve your heart problem. And that our hearts need to change within marriage. And as it does, as we start to do good things for each other, as we stop doing the not-so-good things towards one another... The hands, the feet, the eyes, they change along with the heart. If you're doing things, your hands, that are leading you away from God, stop. Cut that off. Turn around. Change. Repent. And, and that's what repentance is, right? Changing. Turning around. If you're heading down a path, your feet, that is leading you away from God, stop. Turn around. Repent, change, change your thinking, change all those things. If you're thinking, if you're daydreaming, if you're wishing, envisioning things that aren't good for yourself, stop. Gouge those eyes out. Turn around, repent. And, and back to verse 49, everybody goes through trials. Everybody goes through tests. But don't let those trials and those tests leach out your saltiness. Dilute the salt in you. The, the best way to stay salty is to be at peace with one 
another. You're facing trials. You're facing tests. In your marriage. The best way to stay salty is to be at peace with one another. Make peace. The Apostle Paul makes an appeal to us about the way we live in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's pause there and take a look at the word holy, which means to be set apart. We have the opportunity to be changed by God, to be different from the selfish desires that we have in our heart, to be able to see things differently from a divine perspective, because this divine perspective is the way we can see the will of God, just as Jesus saw the will of God. That's, that's how he was able to be so focused on Jerusalem where he would be delivered as a living sacrifice to the cross. Now, let's take a look at verse 1 with that background information from chapter 9. Let's now look at verse 1 in chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them he taught them again. Now what did he teach? The same thing since the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where it reads, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's been the same message throughout. Repent. Change your direction. Change the selfish, self-serving, pride-filled agenda that you have. Have a, a change of heart towards those who are vulnerable and towards those who aren't like you. Towards things of God. Turn towards love and peace. Turn towards Jesus who offers freedom from sin, who offers reconciliation to God, who offers restorative hope and a bright future in him. There are people who genuinely want the things Jesus has to give, and then there are others who are like the Pharisees. Verse 2, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? See, these guys didn't come to see the kingdom of God at hand. They came with a desire to keep their power and their influence over the people and to have their own way with the people. And this was nothing new between the Pharisees and Jesus. They, they've come to test Jesus before. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. We're all going to be salted. Now the word for test is the same word used when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, the, these guys didn't come with a genuine curiosity to seek the truth. They came with these evil hearts to trap Jesus, to, to test Jesus, to catch Jesus off guard. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, it'll give you an idea of where these guys were coming from. It reads, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. 
they had this agenda. They had an agenda that already assumed Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. They weren't looking for truth. And the ironic thing is that these were religious people who were so cynical toward Jesus. The very people who knew the scriptures so well, who knew it best, couldn't see God right in front of them because they were too busy undermining him. And just because someone claims to know the Bible doesn't mean that they're obedient to it, that they live by it. And you look at Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, you see that the, the devil is very orthodox in his theology. He just makes some twists to it, and he's not obedient to it. Peter wrote in reference to the scriptures in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, and they do the other scriptures. So when the Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're not asking out of a pure heart. They are asking out of a wicked heart, testing Jesus. They're looking to trap him. See, they weren't looking at being salty again. They weren't looking at being at peace with one another, which in this case is a married couple with their spouse. And so they're, at the time, the, the way that they were thinking was, you know, in, in our Jewish community, there, there are two communities here, and we're going to pit them with, against one another by asking this question. Because the, we, they have two very different views on divorce. And so these Pharisees are thinking, if we ask this question, we're going to pit him on one group or the other, and so one group is going to go against him. And so we'll have at least half of us against this guy. So one group believed that they could divorce their wives for any reason at all. Any at all. You burnt my toast. Divorce. Literally. Right? And then there's the second group that was pretty stringent when it came to divorce. That we're staying married even if you burn toast. Right? So, so what these Pharisees, they attempt to do is they're saying, we're going to make him choose a side, and then that side's going to be against him. And then we'll have more people to go against Jesus. So... Either side with this lenient group, burn, burn the toast, gone, or you side with the more severe group because whichever group Jesus chooses, he's going to make an enemy out of that opposing group. We win no matter which group Jesus chooses. So Jesus knew what he was, they were doing, and so he doesn't choose the side. He responded to them with a question referencing the most respected person in all of Judaism, Moses. So verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? And you can start seeing these guys thinking like, oh, shoot. Like, where's Jesus going with this? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And so, you know, you know the Pharisees weren't telling the whole story here. Moses didn't allow something that seemed so easy to do. Moses didn't say like, oh, yeah, you're right. She burned your falafel. Like, that's it. D divorce papers. He, he allowed this certificate to, as a process to bring about some order regarding this issue. Husbands weren't at peace with their wives. And this was Moses' way to bring about some structure to this chaos because the husbands had some crazy reasons as why they wanted to, to divorce their wives. 
Crazy things, like literally burning that pita. Right? So, so the, 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 the pita was kept in the oven too long and you burnt it. And because of that, I should be allowed to divorce you because you don't know how to make a pita. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because of their hardness of heart, they, they couldn't be at peace with one another. They did sin from within, which causes sinful actions with their hands, with their feet, with their eyes. It was no longer a matter of the heart. They, they wanted to make it a matter of law, so Moses responded with law. But these certificates were not intended to promote divorce. But these guys took it as, you know, hey, these are green lights for us to divorce. And they ran with it. They ran to divorce court. Believing Moses totally permitted divorce as long as they had this certificate of divorce. Jesus then wisely moved this discussion towards things that were intended to be. And nowhere near the, the validity of certificates because certificates weren't the real issue. So Jesus takes it off of this certificate thing. He wanted to take them deeper than certificates and, and he took them back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He goes to theology, to which Jews believe Moses wrote this book. And so Jesus took them back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and this is what it reads. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he takes them to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quoted from Genesis regarding marriage and divorce. And there are debates amongst people on whether the book of Genesis is allegorical or it's literal. Now my purpose is not to debate whether the entire book of Genesis is allegorical or literal. That is something that is reserved for Pastor Steve. And so you can just talk to him about that because he took ownership of it, right? Last year he taught Genesis. So that, that's his. That's his. Any Genesis questions, that's him, all right? So don't ask me. I do want to point out that what Jesus quoted from Genesis in the section of the Gospel of Mark here was done so in a literal way. It was not allegorical here. Verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. Then in Genesis 3, we are introduced to the evil one, who is referenced as the serpent, and how sin entered the world. And again, some may argue that this is allegorical. It's not literal. But when looking at Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul takes Genesis 3 literally, not allegorically. That the creation is literal. That sin, that separation from God is literal. And that reconciliation to God is literal. Let me read Romans chapter 5 for us. Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world because the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive abundance of grace and a free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we look at marriage... Divorce, creation, sin, redemption as allegory. We put ourselves in a position to interpret those things very broadly. And what that usually means is that, you know, whatever serves me best is how I'm going to interpret those things. However it works best for me, that's how I want it to be. And so Jesus brings it back to what's literal so that we don't define what marriage is that the scriptures do, that Genesis does. That marriage was not created by people. It was not a social construct. It was not something that just happened. Marriage was a creation decree. It was a divine will. Therefore, it is not a Christian thing. It is a creation thing. Now, verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he established how things are to be in the world that he created. He is creator, and he made marriage exclusive. There aren't multiple partners. He made a man to hold fast to his wife, to delight in one another sexually within this relationship and not outside of this relationship, right? One flesh, until death do they part. So it's not a Christian thing to be married. It is a creation thing. And God is concerned with all marriages, not just Christian ones, not just Jewish ones. And the disciples wanted to discuss this divorce issue further with Jesus. And so in verse 10, And in the house of the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now in Matthew's gospel, he wrote in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What we have here is that divorce is permissible under certain conditions, but it is not recommended. 
Because it is allowed doesn't mean that it's recommended. And the heart of God is to be at peace with one another, as in Mark chapter 9, to, to start doing the smallest of positive things, to stop doing even the smallest of negative things, to have a posture that is receptive to a changed heart, which leads to do things that don't miss the mark with our hands, which leads to moving into a direction that doesn't miss the mark, our feet, which leads to moving into a direction that doesn't miss the mark of seeing things and envisioning things that are not of peace. The posture for a changed heart faces towards repentance, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, and sometimes it is a very difficult path to take, just as it is said in Mark chapter 9, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire, everyone. But maybe it's the better path. The Apostle Paul has further instructions regarding divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just going to read two verses there, verses 13 and 15. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here's another case in which divorce is permissible, but that does not mean that it is prescribed, that it is recommended. The greater call is that of peace. You know, there are many people with differing opinions on marriage and divorce. And my encouragement to you is for you to study the Bible and for you to be obedient to it. I'm not the authority on marriage and divorce. So I encourage you to go to his word to seek that wisdom over such matters. And there are so many scenarios to be considered when talking about divorce. And each relationship has to be looked at with its circumstances to exercise wisdom and discernment and to prayerfully proceed with What's next? And there are just simply too many scenarios to be able to just go through every single one of them. And sometimes our, our ministry staff isn't even asked to be involved in those things, which is, is up to the people who are having challenges. And, and we're, we're asked to come into it when you know, decisions are already made. But if we're invited to speak into a situation... I want to let you know that we are very prayerful about it and we seek a multitude of counselors before we just start speaking into it. And as a church, we need to be very sensitive and sympathetic to those who have divorced. We, we all realize that humanity is very frail and it's good that we don't kick people when they're down and I'm so happy about that within our church. I have full confidence in our church that when people are hurt and they're vulnerable and they're in pain, that you're not just going to pour on more salt. How did Jesus handle adultery? You know, we want to be so judgmental about someone who's divorced and like, oh, let's, let's push them out or let's treat them in such a way or whatever. But, but how did Jesus treat adultery? It's in here. Mark, John chapter 8, 
It's in John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. It's funny because where's the guy? Because usually it takes two. But anyway, now in, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? Again, pitting Jesus with, against people, right? So they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And, was, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Why do I bring this situation up? Because if someone gets remarried under any other grounds other than the ones mentioned before here, that remarriage is adulterous. It is. So here's the question. Does it mean that that marriage is regarded as an ongoing adulterous relationship for the rest of their lives? I don't think it is. Again, people can disagree with this, but because a remarriage is considered adulterous, is it looked upon in that way for the rest of that new marriage? Because it is a marriage in that it is an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. It is a permanent one going forward. And once the marriage covenant is formed, it needs to be honored with a divine devotion within it and a godly care for it. So what's the thinking behind such a thought? Well, all of us have probably discovered that what we have done or what we are doing is something that we ought not to do. We've probably all received revelation from God when, when we've read our Bibles to discover that we are off the mark. That there are things we have done that are just flat out rebellious even when the instructions of the Bible are crystal clear about it and we've all done this. We've all done this. And, and what do we do? What do we do knowing this? We confess our sins to God. We repent of our sins, we, we change, and then we seek forgiveness of God. And there are a lot of choices we've made during our lives that have missed the mark. A lot of things that cannot be undone. It is impossible to go back in time. So where do we go from where we are? What do we do? The only thing that we can do. From now on, we sin no more. That is our intention. We trust God for who he is. We recognize our mistakes. We repent. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this does not mean we just do whatever we want, knowing that God is so gracious that he's going to forgive me no matter what. So therefore, I can just do whatever I want. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 66, verse 2, At whom the Lord look. It says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, who God will look down upon. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's who God looks on. 
So if you're just saying, you know, I'm going to sin, it's okay, whatever, you do not have a contrite spirit. You are not humble. You are not trembling at his word. So therefore, that does not pertain to you. Humility, a contrite spirit, a spiritual transformation by living by the word of God, by his spirit, are not part of someone's life who thinks that they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, because God will just forgive them for anything that they do. There is forgiveness for those who are truly repentant. And the Bible is full of messed up people. Actually, all of them. Except for Jesus, right? I mean, look at just Matthew chapter 1. Look at Jesus' genealogy. It is crazy. There's some messed up people in there. Really messed up people in there. David was a murderer. He killed somebody. He was an adulterer. Tamar was a prostitute to her father-in-law. Incest. Judah, right? Judah. He was a prostitute to Judah who brought forth Perez and Zerah. That's where they came. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. You talk about adultery? In Jesus' genealogy, Ruth was a Moabite. She's a pagan. These are all Jesus' grandparents. Scandalous family right here. Just to show the power of the grace of God. For God to show his amazing grace. I'm going to send my son through those people. My love, my grace is for those people. My forgiveness is for people who have been separated from me. That is precisely who it's for. And so are we like Jesus in how we deal with people like this adulterous woman? Or are we like the Pharisees who want to kill her? Not that we compromise on the word of God and its instructions. We do not do that. We do recognize the grace of God, though. We do recognize that God restores people. That it, he restores to us the joy of his salvation. There have been, there are, there will be people who are Christians who have strayed far from Jesus. But God's grace has restored them. Even in cases of willful rebellion. But by the grace of God go I. Am I so arrogant, prideful to think that I am without sin? That I will not willfully sin in the future? If anyone says that, they are a liar and therefore is your willful sin. So there. If you are entertaining divorce... I'm asking you to please talk to someone in our church. That you would just reach out and that you would let us pray. I'm not saying that we can do anything. We're, we're, we're frail. We're weak. We don't have any good things to say. The only thing that we can do is bring it before God with you. And have God do something. If you are entertaining sin, let's talk. Let's pray. Let's go to Jesus together. We are not going to go to Jesus 
testing him, saying, Jesus, this person has this sin. What are you going to do about it? With the intention of kill them. Kill them. We are going to bring you to Jesus with the intention of Jesus does miracles. Jesus is all about peace. For us to be at peace with one another. The saltiest we can be is to be at peace with one another. Not to drive division, not to be in strife. To do the smallest of things, of good things to one another. To stop doing those smallest of bad things to one another. To really look at what we are doing, the, the directions we are facing, how we are envisioning things. To cut all those things off that are of no good. Stop doing those things. You're not helping. You're making it worse. We need to bring things before Jesus, knowing that he is so gracious. Keeping in mind Jesus' genealogy and where he came from. If we are so judgmental about the things that people are doing and the sin in their life, where did our Savior come from? He came from a messed up home. Some messed up people. That's precisely why he did it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would gift us with humility to be able to see our own pride and our own arrogance in our own hearts. We ask, God, that you would gift us with your grace, with the ability to see the way that you see, to do things the way that you do, and to walk in a direction that you would be walking, even if it means that it's really tough because you exited Galilee right here in Mark 10 and you're heading towards Jerusalem, a very tough road to the cross as a living sacrifice. So Lord, may you give us the courage and the boldness, even if the path is hard, but if it is your will for us to walk in that direction to walk towards you, to meet you at the foot of the cross where you've taken everything that can possibly separate us from you. Lord, would you bless our church as you have so abundantly already done. You've blessed us with these amazing people who reflect who you are who really love others, who do not judge, who do not condemn others. We so desire people to see the real you. And so, Lord, would you continue to bless them with that ability to affect our culture, to speak into it in such a way that the gospel is alive and people are wondering, why are these people so salty? Why are they at so much peace with one another, even though everything around us is at war? In Jesus' name, amen.